Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there, there should be some in that row in front of you. Also, we don't print the text in the bulletin. Um, part of that is because we have scripture journals that we want to give to you. So these are on the table. If you go out the doors and turn left on the table, there's a whole stack of them there. Basically, it's the scripture all throughout Philippians on the left, and then you can take notes on the right on each page. So feel free to take one of those. They're really handy as we work through this sermon series of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, I'll read from verse 1 to verse 11. We'll be focusing on verses 3 through 11. This is God's word, so would you please stand as we read it together. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, speak to us this morning as we read from your holy word. We thank you for it. Open our eyes to Christ, our need for him, and the work he's done. Father, we need you. I'm, I'm just a speaker. I can't, I can't do anything supernatural, but your word can do all things. It can transform our hearts. So be with us now and bless us through your word by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I told you last week uh, that if I were to defi- define Paul's letter to the church at Philippi with one word, it would be joy. Right? This letter is all about joy and how that joy is attained. How do we attain that joy? Not just a mere happiness in a Christian life, but joy, joy that runs deep, joy that gives us comfort and security. How do we attain it? We attain it through knowing and serving Christ Jesus. That is the main theme of this, this book of Philippians. And so as we go through the, the letter together in the coming months, my goal is, is that we would be overwhelmed with that same joy that Paul is giving us in this letter, that we'd be overwhelmed at the joy of knowing Christ, knowing Jesus and serving him. Now in this section of Paul's letter, as as he is getting into his introduction, just the beginning of this letter, we see his joy, but we also see his love. We see his joy, but we see his pastoral heart really come through 
in these verses. His affection. He uses the word affection for the people in this church. Remember where Paul is when he's writing this letter. Right? He's not on some vacation in the Bahamas living the life. No, he is in prison. He is under house arrest in Rome. More than likely, he's chained to a guard where he, he cannot leave. He is allowed people to come in and see him and attend to his needs, his friends, but he is writing from, from prison. He's under house arrest. And so, while he is in not a, a good condition, right? he, he has a lot of reasons to not be optimistic, to not be happy, but he is grounded in joy, in the joy of knowing Christ and serving him. He loves them so much, so much so that he prays for them and reassures them of God's work in their life. You know, if you love somebody, you will reassure them of your love, won't you? And isn't it so amazing? We have a God who does that. He doesn't just say it one time. He reassures us of his love and his care for us. It's like for you, you are married, right? You continually say you love your spouse. You don't just say, well, I, I said that when I got married and you know, no more do I need to say that, right? No, we say it again and again. We reassure, we reassure. And it's amazing. I, I'm just really struck as I was studying this this week of, of Paul's pastoral heart for the people of Philippi, this church in Philippi. It reminds me in 1 Thessalonians where he says to the Thessalonians, I not only shared the gospel with you, but I shared my own self. That as a pastor, you don't just, as an apostle here, you don't just share the gospel, you share your life with the people you serve. And I just wanted to tell you, in line with what he's saying, because this is not just something we're reading about in history of a pastor loving his church. This is God reminding you that you are loved by him, but also by the, the pastors that serve you. And I wanted to tell you, in line with that, that I'm so blessed to be your pastor. Sometimes I, I think throughout the week that how blessed I am that you guys pay me to be your pastor. That you guys pay me to share the gospel. What, a, what an awesome privilege that is. Right? I could be, I could be working for VDOT and uh, cleaning up roadkill and doing a hard job and but you guys, you've given me a, a job to, to read God's word, to bring it to you on Sunday, to pray for, pray for you, and to share my life with you. Sometimes pastors get a bad rap because they, they think that, people think that they only work on Sunday. That they just, they just, they live here at the church. And they, I used to think the pastor lived at the church when I was little. Um, but it's so much more than that. It's such a joy because I get to spend time with you. I get to pray for you. I get to check in on you. And that's what, that's what he's doing. And it's not just me. The elders of the church get to do that. We spend time, we spend over an hour every session meeting praying for you, praying for your needs, often with tears, because we know the struggles many of you are going through. And so when we elders get together and pray, there are often tears in the room. There's often, um, there's a lot of emotion there because we love you. Not just love you, but we have an affection for you. I was reading the difference. There's a difference between emotion and affection. He uses the word affection, meaning affection is, like, is rooted in reality. It's rooted in what you know. Emotion can sometimes vacillate between what is true and not true. Your emotions can go crazy. You can be fearful. You can be worried. They can be positive and negative, but 
Affection is like this long-lasting, deep-rooted love for someone. And that is what he's saying he has for the people. He says, why? Because I've partnered with you in the gospel. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's what he's saying has linked them together is the good news of Jesus. Working together. When you work hand-in-hand with other Christians in, in a ministry, in a church, maybe you've been a part of, an, of a former church, and maybe it was a church plant, there's bonds that really get formed, deep bonds with other Christians when you do on-the-ground ministry together week in and week out. And that's what he's shared with these people. He says things like, I hold you in my heart. Look how honest, look how vulnerable he's being. He's not afraid of, of, be, of being called effeminate, right? He is, he's sharing his heart. He's saying, I hold you in my heart. You're partakers of me with, with grace. He says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. You see where it comes from. It's the affection he knows from his Savior that he then shares with the people. It's rooted in Christ's love for himself. And that is what uh, he does. He, he reminds them of, of his love, but he's reminding them also of God's love and that it's a powerful love. And so in this letter, he's telling them that what God started in you, he will bring to completion. What, what he began, he's going to finish with you. That, that's the main uh, that's, that's the huge uh, implication of what he's saying here, is that what God started in you as a church and individually, he's going to continue. And so what's, what's the value in understanding that doctrine? We call it the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That God will, through his power, preserve you and you will persevere as a believer. It's this idea of the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer until you're a finished product. Right until you're done. Have you ever seen uh, a house, maybe driving by the road, a house or a building that someone started and then never finished and then just left it there? Isn't that a sad... Whenever you're driving, doesn't it just make you sad to see something like that? Something that's not finished? To see something that somebody had plans and aspirations, they put investment into it, and then it just fell apart. Maybe bankruptcy was involved, something. God never does that to you. He never starts something in you that he won't finish, that he won't complete, that he would, that he would some, somehow leave you in the midst of that. God doesn't do that to his people. He keeps us to the end. So the truth I want to hammer in today is that knowing that God keeps those he saves it will fortify your trust in him and your love for and your love for others so knowing that he keeps those he saves will fortify your trust in him and love for others we're going to ask three questions of the text this morning the first one is how did i get here the second is how will things turn out and third how should i live in the meantime so how did i get here how will it turn out and then what do i do in that in between time so first, how did I get here? Do you ever just sit back and think, take a minute, reflect on your life and say, how did I get here? 
how did I get here in this church? Or maybe you're on your back porch and you're thinking about your life. How did I get to this place in my life? Do you ever do that in your spiritual journey? Do you ever think back, how did it all start? How did I get, how did I become a Christian? How did I first believe? What drew me to, to God? Well, the truth is, for everyone who believes, it began with God, didn't it? It began with God. It was God's work from the get-go. I think back to my own life and these moments where I'm reading through Romans and just the words are jumping off the page and I'm I'm, I'm reading that the wages of sin is death and I know that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved and the free gift of God is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you can't manufacture true conviction of sin. You can't just come up with that on your own. It has to be drawn out of you. It has to be, it has to be God acting upon you to have that true conviction of sin. And you, if you can't manufacture true conviction of sin, you can't manufacture true trust in Jesus. It has to be initiated with God. That's what he's saying in verse 6. I'm sure of this, church, that he who began a good work in you. He didn't say, when you began that good work in you. No, when, the, when God began a good work in you. When he opened your eyes. Why is that so important? You won't understand God's ability to keep you if you don't believe that God is the one who saved you. I'll say that again. You won't understand God's ability to keep you if you don't believe God is the one who saved you. If the only evidence you have for your belief in Christ is your decision, then the only hope you have for your continued faithfulness is your willpower. Does that make sense? If it was all based upon your decision and willpower, then it it has to continue that way. But if you understand that God chose you before the foundation of the world, that he called you, that he drew you to himself irresistibly, that he gave you the ability to believe, that he opened your heart like Lydia in Acts 16, then you can know for certain that you will be kept in a state of saving faith because it's not by your willpower, it's by his power. Jesus actually confirmed this idea in in John chapter 6. Verse that I've always clung to, always loved. Powerful. He says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you hear that security? There are those the Father has who will come to Jesus. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And once you're with Jesus, he'll never cast you out. I'm also reminded of the verses in the end of Jude. Jude comes right before Revelation. This doxology, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and with great joy. Our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. See what he's saying there? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God's the one keeping you 
from stumbling. And it's not just stubbing your toe. It's from eternal stumbling. It's from falling away. It can't happen once you're in. So when you ask yourself the question, how did I get here? Spiritually speaking, believing, trusting in God, it began with him. It began with God. How did we get here? God brought us here. So that takes us to the next question, how will things turn out? Let me read verse 6 again. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He uses this word completion. Completion. You can also say brings it to a finished state. God will bring to a finished state what he, what he started in you. And notice, he's speaking to individuals, but he's really also speaking to the, the, the whole church. So he's really, this is also an idea of, of God keeping the entire church, preserving his church, the universal church, until the day of Jesus. So he's, he's, he's speaking corporately as well as individually. Some of you may have heard the, the idea of once saved, always saved. And I want to distinguish what the Bible teaches from maybe some versions of that that I think go wrong. So, How does this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints differ from that idea of once saved, always saved? Well, sometimes people, when they say once saved, always saved, what they're saying is, if you've made a decision for Jesus at one point in your life, and whether or not you kind of hold to that, believe it, have faith, you're in. You are in, you're always saved. That is not what the Bible teaches perseverance of the saints, perseverance is always through faith. It's always by faith. Disobedience in your faith, in your, in your life, disobedience and assurance never go hand in hand. They're not supposed to. The doctrine of perseverance is only comforting for those who have faith and are working their faith out every day of their lives. It's not intended to bring comfort to those who one, at one point in their life made a decision for Christ, walked the aisle, and then never gave Jesus a thought again. That's not what the Bible is talking about with, with perseverance of the saints. It's those who are not perfect, but who are struggling in their faith, applying their faith, growing in their faith, little by little, every day. It's always through faith. It's this idea, you cannot, you cannot separate the idea of, of perseverance with, with sanctification. Sanctification and perseverance go together. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the five points of Calvinism, but the P in TULIP, so you have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. That's the last one. It's really linked to this idea of being made holy throughout your life. I wanted to read this statement from Eric Raymond thought it was helpful. He says, For me, the most difficult point of Calvinism is the fifth of Tulip, perseverance of the saints. And the reason for this stems from the fact that I live with myself 24 hours a day. Anybody else live with themselves 24 hours a day? I get the check engine alert, and when I pop the hood of my soul and I take a look, I'm discouraged. I feel the weight of sin. A cold heart, lethargic disciplines, lukewarm devotion, embarrassing zeal, and a regrettable reflex of pride. 
This is what I feel and experience some days. But then I look in the trunk of the car, on the trunk, in the back trunk of the car, and I see the bumper sticker, Perseverance of the Saints. What? How? It's like driving a clunker across the country. I have a hard time believing I can make it to the celestial city. But here's the good news. As unsettling as this is, he writes, it is actually right where I need to be. Through the feeling of my own inadequacy, I actually cry out to God for grace. I need help. Lord, how am I going to keep going? And then I remember how I got going in the first place. It was an act of God's sovereign grace. It was God who caused me to be born again, as we read in 1 Peter 1. It was God who made me alive when I was dead in sin. No one can snatch me out of the Father's hand, Jesus says in John 10. It's God who justifies. Who then could condemn? Romans 8. And from Jude 24, it's God who will present us blameless with great joy before his throne. If you're struggling like that, as I do sometimes, remember how it got started. If you remember how it got started, you'll be encouraged that you will be brought to the finished state, the complete state. And that is what we refer to as definite sanctification, that sanctification is definite. It's going to happen. It's going to come to this finished place. Dennis Johnson says, certainty of the Spirit's ultimate success is what gives us reason to expect that our erratic efforts to redirect our heart's focus away from ourselves and toward others can actually make progress. The Spirit's ultimate success gives us hope. But let me, let me tell you this. It's important. It doesn't happen automatically. Perseverance requires perspiration. It requires sweat. It requires hard work. We are involved in our perseverance. This isn't separate. We're not robots where we can just relax on the couch and say, watch football Sunday afternoon and just assume perseverance is going to happen. No, we have to be engaged. We have to work hard. We have to work out our salvation. As he says, as Paul says in Philippians 2.12, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Dennis Johnson continues, he says, although God's spirit will successfully complete his renovation of our hearts, we must still resist the ingrained habits of our hearts that contradict his holiness and love. Anybody have any ingrained habits they're still pushing against and still fighting against? I do. You must fight. You must resist. You must work. You must perspire. Our Westminster Confession of Faith says it like this. We are, this is chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We are not to grow negligent as if we were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. Meaning we, don't have, we can't just sit back and say, well, the Spirit didn't lead me to do anything really today. No, it says we ought to diligently be stirring up the grace of God that's in us. Stirring up the grace of God that God has given us. Are you doing that? How do you do that? By what means do you stir up that grace? 
Well, I'd say one of the ways is attend to the means of grace. His word, worship, prayer. Do those simple things and the, the grace of God will be stirred up in you. Well, that leads us to our final question. If we know the end goal, we know how we started, we know the end goal, how should we li- live in that meantime, in that in-between time? And here we're going to look at Paul's closing prayer in this introduction. Verses 9 through 11. Let's, I'll read it again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Where does he start with what we ought to be doing? What's his prayer? Love. That your love may abound. That your love may abound more and more. You know, here at Hope, we part of our vision statement is we seek to be a loving and caring church. That's the very first part of our vision statement, that we desire to be a loving and caring church that glorifies God by impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love. Why do we start there? Why is it so important for Paul? It's because love is the most defining characteristic of the church. 1 John chapter 3 says, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is essential for us to be growing in. It's also essential for the ministry of the church and how we are to evangelize. In our evangelism book that we're doing in Sunday school, John Stott, the great pastor, preacher in England, says the invisible God who once made himself visible in Christ now makes himself visible in Christians if we love one another. You ever thought about that? Jesus was here visibly, physically, when he lived on earth. He lives now in heaven, so he's not visible to us. How then is Christ visible? Through the church. If we love one another, through our love to one another, people see Christ. Therefore, it's essential for the love of Christ to be among us. Stott says, it's a breathtaking claim. The local church cannot evangelize or proclaim the gospel of love if it's not itself a community of love. That should be our goal. That should be what we strive to do. And so how do we grow in love? You know, I think one of the ways we grow in love toward each other is we remind ourselves of verse 6, that he who began a good work in your spouse, in your kids, in the people you struggle to love at church, he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion. Knowing that God will one day complete our spouses and our family and our friends who are in Christ should grow what? Our patience and our compassion toward them knowing that if we're not finished products, they're not finished products, but they will be one day. It reminds me, as we, we have four kids, seven, five, three, and one, and, and sometimes we parent, I parent the, the three-year-old like he's a seven-year-old. I, I expect him to know what the seven-year-old knows. And he's not even close. Three is a long way off from seven, let me tell you. 
It's a huge gap there. And I think we do that to each other sometimes, expecting to be dealing with glorified saints. <laughs> but we're not. We're not even close sometimes. We have a long way to go. But we're going to get there, and we can have hope for that, and we can have patience for that. Dennis Johnson said, The last time you blew up rather than calmly, gently dealing with the fact that your wife or your son or your daughter isn't yet perfect, and your heart was pierced by that look of pain on your loved one's face when you blew up at them, that's when we need to be reminded that they're, they're on a journey too. And, and they're on that journey of sanctification. And God is working in them, growing in them. And we'll bring them to that place of completion. But they're not there yet. And that's where grace comes in. Where we offer grace because we've been given grace. You know, love is defined again and again by the Apostle Paul as sacrificing yourself for others. Putting your own needs aside for the needs of of others. And that's what we see in Jesus. That's what we see as we look to Christ. That he is the embodiment of 1 Corinthians 13. That love is patient. And love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not proud. It endures all things. That is Christ. Before you can be loving, you have to know that love for you. You have to know that kind of love was done for you. What else does Paul say in this final section here? Well, he says, so love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. With knowledge and discernment, why? So we can approve what is excellent. Knowledge and discernment. Are you growing, are we growing in our knowledge of the scriptures and theology? Are you growing in your knowledge and discernment of what God teaches or are you content? Now, so think of learning the scriptures as like there's a shallow end and a deep end of a pool. Are you content with swimming in the shallow end? I say this in pastoral love. I'm really not trying to, to batter. Um, but some of you need to take off your puddle jumpers and start going to the deep end a little bit. Dabble in the deep end a little bit. Start, start studying God's word more and more. I'll give you two practical ways to do that. Read the whole Bible in a year, right? So January's coming up. Start January 1st, read the whole Bible in a year. Try that. I have a great Bible app I use, the Bible Project app. It takes you through the whole Bible in a year. You read the Psalms twice. Do that. Read it. Read it to yourself. Secondly, join a book study. Join a Bible study here at the church. Read with others. Read by yourself through the Bible in a year and read with others. Go through books together. That's how you will grow. That's how you will learn to be uh, discerning and learning and knowledge. Why? Because we want to be changed, right? God's word changes us. It says so we will be pure and blameless. It doesn't mean perfection, but that we'll be growing in obedience to Christ. We'll be changing slowly as God's word changes us. And we're going to learn to love what he loves, learn to hate what he hates, and learn who God, who is this God that we worship? And who does he want me to be like? And then he says, for the day of Christ is coming. He says, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about the return of Christ. That, that he's coming back. That Jesus is returning. 
and we don't know when. It's, uh, it could be any day, it could be any hour. Are you going to be ready to see him face to face? Are you going to feel ready for that? Or will you be so distracted by life that you'll be caught by surprise? Are we letting life distract us too much? Or are we reprioritizing our life to be ready for the day of the Lord? And how we love one another and and how we're learning. And then he says, we'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We'll be producing fruit. We'll be producing righteous fruit. What kind of fruit do you see in your life? Is it righteous? Or do you have selfish fruit that you're seeing in your life? Do you have the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you see that in your life? Is that what's being produced? And how do you know? Where is it? How, how do we produce that? It's from Jesus. He says it. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Your production of fruit comes through communing with Jesus. The more you spend time with Jesus, the more you'll think like him, act like him, and live like him. And it's a reminder that you have pastors, a pastor, and you have elders that love you. But Jesus loves you more. He wants to be with you even more than I do. We tell it to our kids that, kids, we love you, but God loves you more. Paul says, I have affection for you, Philippians, but it's the affection of Christ that I'm bringing to you. It's the love of Christ that I'm bringing to you. He desires to be with you. He desires to see you change and grow. Why? Because it brings him glory. And that's how Paul ends his prayer, to the glory and praise of God. It's not about us. He will keep you. Why? For his glory. Because it makes him look awesome, beautiful, as he ought to be. Because he's the most glorious thing in the world. And when we glorify God, something amazing happens. We get joy. When you make God the most important thing in your life, you will receive joy beyond anything you've ever experienced. So let's enjoy him together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you keep us. And you keep us because you're the one that started this whole thing. You started the church. You continue the church. We're a part of the church. And each one of us, you began a good work in. Those of us who look to Christ. Would we be encouraged as we share the gospel, as we live at our faith, knowing that you're building your church you will continue to till the day of the Lord Jesus, which we long for. Help us, Father. Encourage us to be faithful, to rely upon you and not ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.